Today's guest is Dr. Harrison Schultz. Harrison was one of the key organizers in Occupy Wall Street and kind of became an unofficial spokesperson. Back then, he appeared on MSNBC and other uh, major television uh, outlets speaking on Occupy Wall Street and the movement. And uh, he and I actually connected a couple of years after that, uh, kind of randomly when I was in New York, when I was in the cult, I was uh, making media, I was interviewing people on the street on sexuality, and he, uh, he and I clicked because he had some of the most interesting perspectives. Um, and he and I ended up running into each other again. Maybe a year later, I was interviewed for a dating uh, channel, and he happened to be the interviewer. Uh, so it's kind of a serendipitous that we crossed paths, uh, we became friends, had many great conversations, um, and actually trained martial arts together for a while. But I wanted to reach out to him again because with the state of the world and with a lot of the misinformation, a lot of the hatred on both sides, for people who really want the same thing, at least in the United States and I think the world, um, I really wanted to create a, a way for the smart and non-hateful ideas of both parties, of, of the different sides of different arguments to be able to be clearly stated. And I had this idea, I don't know if I'm going to do it anytime soon, so I'm announcing it so no one steals it or at least I get credit. I, wanna, I wanted to create a debate series called Intellectual Cage Match. It would be a, a debate series with an MMA gimmick. Still might do it, but it's been a little harder to organize than I had planned. But I reached out to Harrison to represent the intelligent viewpoints of Left, and some might call it extremist left or radical left, but I really appreciate his viewpoints. Um, Harrison has a lot to say on monetary reform and on what anarchy is. Uh, he has a different understanding of anarchy than I was understanding prior to this conversation. So um, this is a great episode to listen to. I, I mean, I highly encourage anyone who is right-leaning to listen to this because my real goal with ever bringing up anything political on this podcast is to get people to recognize that we really want the same thing. And this is something I, I speak a little bit about at the end of the episode, like the worst propaganda that we're all subject to right now is this idea that the other half of society is evil or wants something bad or is, you know, obviously bad people exist, but in my experience, most people, and I would actually say 99% of people want the same thing. They want harmony. They want success. They want good communities. We have different ideas of how to reach that, but I mean... Creating enemies out of your brothers and sisters doesn't lead to anything. So anyway, whether or not you agree with uh, Harrison is an interesting episode. Right now you're listening to episode 091, Dr. Harrison Schultz on Anarchy, Deviance, and the Left. The Rwando Podcast is an exploration of the unconscious and the game of life. Be sure to visit Rwando.com to get a preview chapter of my upcoming book, Infinite Play, and free access to my content library. Enjoy the show. Great. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Dr. Schultz, first time I think we've spoken since you got your PhD. Uh, cool, man. Uh, so, yeah, glad to have you on. Uh, there's a lot of things I want to ask you about. Um, what's going on in your life, though? It's been a couple of years, I think. I'm a in Central Park. <laughs> okay. I got, my, I got my PhD now. I'm groundskeeping in Central Park. It's about minimum wage because that's, that's America right now. <laughs> No, I've been doing that for about a year now. And uh, yeah, I've been doing that just to hold it down while I've been still trying to organize a new movement against the Federal Reserve Bank of New York for the Need Act. The groundskeeper mm -hmm. by day, organizer for a couple minutes every night when I get home before I collapse. Well, I'm delay. getting ready to do my next demo. My, my next attempt will be on the anniversary of Occupy Wall Street. The nine-year anniversary is coming up on September 17th. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll be I'll be up back out there again, doing my usual thing. 
out of curiosity, how come you didn't get a teaching job or like, is it hard to get a teacher? I kind of assume that's what you would do after you got your PhD. Uh, well, I mean, uh, A, I put so much energy into my dissertation that I didn't build the network and the connections to get a teaching job right afterwards. Uh, B, like I was just way too burnt out, like from doing all the writing and the reading to go right back into that. I had, my, my brain was just like shot. I had to give it a break. And C, uh, I'm more interested in direct action. I'm more interested in actually organizing than I am in mm -hmm. even getting like a normal career at this point. And, Fair enough. And, and in all fairness, like when I graduated, you know, my, my, my hypothesis and my fear about uh, an economic collapse has been completely proved true. I mean, like, there's no point in even trying to get a teaching job now that all the universities are completely closed and people aren't even going to classes. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, all that, I mean, some, all these career plans, I mean, everyone's lives, lives have in some way been disrupted. Like, there's no more, there's no new mm -hmm. normal. Everyone's, you know, everyone knows. And the thing is, you know, you talk about the state of the world, the past four months, of the Trump depression, uh, like this is just the foreplay for when we all really start getting screwed. Like once the dollar loses all its value, the, the dollar right now, I mean, the Federal Reserve has created more money in the past month than the entire the United States government has in two whole centuries of existence. And there's, you know, the consequences that our, our money is becoming increasingly worth less compared to other uh, country's currencies and so i mean sooner or later it's only a matter of time before we before the dollar just completely collapses at this point and you know we can only we can only really start to guess at the scope of the disruption that this is going to entail for everyone's day-to-day -day lives i mean is there a party because you've been uh, you've been talking about this ever since i've known you i don't know i think we've known each other like five years or something like that um, it's been a while, yeah. And uh, is, it, is it a little bit vindicating that the world is kind of falling apart? Because probably a lot of people were like, oh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's nice, but like, come on, things aren't going to fall apart. Is there, I mean, I, I'm sure you're not happy, but is there a part of you that's like, well? Yeah, I mean, there, I mean I've had a few friends who were like, damn, like, I can't believe how well you're calling this. I mean, but mm -hmm. at the same time, like, yeah, like, this is people's lives. Like, it's, it's not something I'm going to gloat about and say I was right. You know, like, because it's just, it's just so shitty. <laughs> and like, you know, the, the thing, the, the bigger point, I mean, like, like it, it, it in some ways, it, like, yes, it is vindicating to know that I'm not insane, you know, that I'm actually looking at the world the right way and that the choices I've made with my lifestyle have actually kind of prepared me for what's coming. You know, I feel like I'm prepared to do something about this. But I mean, the worst feeling even still, like, Far better than this just to see it. it's just to see how preventable and how avoidable it is just to see like it like things don't have to be like this right now you know i mean like if more people knew about the federal reserve and more people started studying the need act the national emergency employment defense act i mean that bill would give us the national health care system we need to fight the covid crisis that bill would create the jobs we would need, creating a green new energy infrastructure and a green new transportation 
sector to keep people employed, you know, right now throughout all this. And it would get people out of debt. It would, it would wipe out any kind of medical student credit card. Can you explain what the credit. NEED Act is? Yeah, it's, it's a piece of legislation written in 2011 by Dennis Kucinich, who ran against Barack Obama in 2008. And uh, <laughs> Dennis Kucinich read, uh, he wrote the NEED Act after he read this book, The Lost Science and Learning. The title is backwards. Hmm. But just, yeah. I can but see it straight. Yeah. He read this book and then um, he wrote the NEED Act. He worked with the author, Stephen Zarlenga, and the American Monetary Institute to get this bill created. And this bill, it's the most revolutionary document I've ever read. It, it's, I find it more inspiring than the American Constitution. Even. And um, so what it would do, it would, it would create a Green New Deal for the 99% by nationalizing the Federal Reserve, putting it under the Treasury and under Congress like it's supposed to be. You know, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 5 of the United States Constitution gives Congress the, the right and indeed the responsibility to create and circulate money in this country. It shouldn't be advocating to the private Wall Street banking cartel that's completely unaccountable. And it's charging us interest for this thing that we should be doing for ourselves for free anyway, which is creating our own money. And the other th important thing that this bill would do, the three reforms, the three reforms that this bill does and that we need in order to completely and this crisis, this economic catastrophe, pandemic-fueled catastrophe, once and for all, that it, it ends fractional reserve lending. And fractional reserve lending is basically the banker's ability to make money just based on uh, the loans, based on their reserves within the Fed. They can, they can make an indefinite amount of loans just based on other loans that they, that they, that they they have in the Fed. Like the thing that the thing that's really important to understand about our monetary system is that money gets created through loans. When when banks give out loans to homeowners, to governments, to businesses for whatever, that creates more money in the system that inflates our monetary supply. Like our money isn't backed up by deposits. It's not backed up like our like the banks don't make loans based on consumer deposits or business deposits. That's like this fallacy that everyone has. Like, so the whole move your money movement, all these people that want to move their money out of the banks into co-ops, that's not going to stop Wall Street at all. It's not even going to slow them down because they don't, they don't make loans based on the money that you leave in the bank. They just make the loans out of nothing. And that's how it works. And that has to stop. There's no point in American families having to balance their budget until, you know, bankers, Wall Street, backed by the Fed, start balancing their budgets and start getting more fiscally responsible. I mean, there's no way for American families to start getting more fiscally responsible until this excess money lending is reined in on Wall Street. So the other thing, it, it nationalizes the Fed, it ends fractional reserve lending, and it spends money directly into existence on 99%. So now our government isn't paying interest. There's no more tax, there's no more need for taxes. There's no more need for the IRS with this bill and with this monetary system that we create. Because now money is just spent directly on people who are building roads, you know, doctors taking care of the sick, people who are teaching the um, like directly on infrastructure. 
And that's what we need to start getting out of this mess and start fixing our country. And every other country in the world, like Thailand, needs their own version of the Act. Mm -hmm. So uh, I assume that everything like works. I mean, I'm sure every 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 bill has its flaws and ups. I'll just assume it works, though. Uh, how do you possibly incentivize the decision makers to do this, right? Because I'm sure most of them are profiting from the current system. Well, I mean, I mean, with with movement building, with leverage, you know, you put them, you put them, you, you have to create an offer that they can't refuse. I mean, the way that you leverage them into this is you set up an occupation in front of the New York Fed. You wouldn't even have to set up an occupation in front of every Federal Reserve branch in order to completely shut down the global economy. Like all these marchers, you know, the, the BLM movement, people who really want to shut it down, they should really study the Fed. Because if they can't do their job there, like the entire monetary, the flow of money in the global economy just cannot function the same way it ordinarily would, you know? Like one, like, you know, just get a couple, like, just get that really bad drum circle from Occupy Wall Street back, put it out in front of the Fed, get them banging those drums every day, all day, to the point where the bankers can't focus on, you know, doing their accounting. And you say, hey, you know, we're going to keep this up until you pass this bill. Like, that's how you leverage them into it. But with the current state of the world, everything's remote. Can't they just, can't they just go remote? Like, I feel like uh, location. Oh, well, there's that too. I mean, there's. To be. I mean, I mean, the beauty of the bill is that all you got to do is call your Congress rep. All people have to do from home, you know, people from home who don't want to go out and protest. And I'm really happy. I was really happy to hear that the Black Lives Matter protests, there's no COVID cases amongst the BLM marches and rallies in the city because it's all open air, it's staying in the sunshine in the summer, everyone's wearing masks. Like we know it's safe to protest in, during the pandemic thanks to the bravery of, of BLM. But for people who can't make it out and protest and demonstrate, they can stay at home and just call their, their, con their Congress rep. And we know this works. We, we, like, really the point of direct action at the Fed, for me, is really to generate the phone calls and the emails and the tweets, like tweeting to your Congress rep, a link with the Need Act. I mean, it, I mean, it's just such a, like, we don't need to be in this mess. Like it, it'd be very simple to build a movement behind this bill. But I mean, the issue that I run into, you know, when I talk about this, people say, Hey, this sounds great. If anything is too good to be true. Who's behind it? Like, you know, who, there's no Congress rep pushing for it. Now people don't see any real power. They don't see any momentum behind the bill. All they see is me, you know, just, I'm just alone, not right now. But I'm not alone. We did uh, is he not in Congress anymore? He's not. He got he got kicked out. He got oh. gerrymandered out of Congress specifically for writing this bill. I've been told. Hmm. But um, the new group that's pushing for this bill is called the Alliance for Just Money, and um, I just joined I just joined this organization. I've known them for years, but like I'm not going to pay money when I'm just doing monetary reform. But I got my dues way. They got me in, and I'm going to start helping them with their social media promotion because it's it's a bunch of policy experts. I mean, it's people who really know their stuff, really smart people. They they have bi-monthly discussions on Zoom. They were doing that well before the pandemic. But they talk monetary policy, they talk monetary history, they really know this stuff. I I mean I'm really like new with this stuff compared to a lot of the people in this organization. <laughs> and um 
but yeah, so I'm going to be helping them out with social media and trying to swell their ranks, get more membership into that group. And uh, I'm really looking forward to So just to, to go back uh, to maybe simplify it, uh, maybe dumb it down a little bit. Um, is the only way to basically threaten revolution or anarchy or shutdown for the decision makers? I think it's the fastest, the most direct way. I think it's the most, I think, I I think it's necessary. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't see any way to get out of this mess without using direct action. And a lot of people want to avoid it. I think it's a lot of fun. I don't know why more people aren't interested in it. You know, I've been doing direct action for almost 10 years now, like serious dangerous stuff with Occupy Wall Street. I've never gotten arrested, not once. You know, like there's, there's ways to avoid it. A lot of people that get arrested are, are looking to make a statement. They're looking for attention, quite frankly. And I mean, like, you know, Abby Hoffman said, like the first duty of every revolutionary is to get away with it. So I like to make it safe. You know, I, heavy on social media, heavy on the education. And yeah, it's, it's just fun, you know? What do you think about the, I think it's Homeland Security is abducting rioters or something? I saw yeah, that on Yeah, I, seven, I uh, saw that Avenue. on, yeah. one, of my, one of my friends from Occupy, Mark Apollo, he actually caught a video of someone getting thrown into a van. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I hope protesters start slashing tires with unmarked vans when that shit starts happening. Like I was against slashing, it's interesting, like, I was against um, protesters slashing cop car tires during Occupy Wall Street. That was a big moment. And I was like, is this ethical or not? And I'm like, it's totally counterproductive. But, like, you're throwing people in unmarked vans. It's time for self-defense. Like, it's... At what to point your, do we declare self-defense? Well, to your point, though, uh, doesn't that just escalate the contention? Like, it could. Yeah, it, and it's, it's got to be... Go ahead. It's got to be done in such a way to de-escalate the tension obviously i mean like i mean personally i don't back it up a little bit further i mean a lot of the protests that are happening out there they should be happening at the fed they should be happening at fed branches or on you know even you know in places where there are no fed branches there's, there's only 16 fed banks in the u.s but there's still like federal property and people were, people could be going and, and making this point if you can't make it here. But I mean, uh, I mean, I'm a part of the left. I love the left. I'm a product of the left. I'm, I'm a lifelong anarchist. My grandma's an anarchist born and raised. So, I mean, I love the left, but as being part of the left, like look where we are. Like we we failed the world just as much as the right has abused it. You know, we we've been marching, running around like chickens with our heads cut off for like almost a century now. And it's time for the left to get a lot smarter and pick it, its target a lot better. And the Fed is like, you know, it's that weak spot in the Death Star. Like that's the weak point that you have to hit. And if you don't hit that you're just kind of superficially dealing with the symptoms of of a much bigger structural problem like there's no way for us to ever have any real freedom until this issue gets solved mm-hmm. this is the so, one in like part of the part of the deal with this issue too is is talking about the ways in which the fed is at the center of the history of racism and the history 
of you know ecological devastation the history of all kinds of domestic and foreign wars like you're not really talking about your issue on the left unless you're also talking about the role that the federal reserve banking system has in creating that social problem in the first place mm-hmm. okay so i'm gonna go, I'm go into anarchy because uh are you familiar with the, the bronze age collapse uh, like Egypt getting wiped out yeah. by the sea people. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, sea, I'm it was like three things stuff. happened. I think there was a drought, the sea people, and then an invasion. And like Egypt was way bigger comparative to the rest of the world the United States is right now. And uh, three things all happened at once and it kind of shut it down. And like now we have, you know, we, have, we basically have a plague. We have riots. Uh, I don't know what's going on in China. It seems like stuff could happen that could like rattle everything and the superpowers could be thrown out of whack. Um, as an anarchist, what do you see the world actually being like if it were to descend into anarchy? Or let's say the superpowers, the United States were to descend into anarchy. Well, I mean, you don't really descend in anarchy, you ascend into anarchy. Okay, f- fair enough. <laughs> you know, you're, I would, I would I'd say before we can have that conversation we have to define what we mean by anarchy you know like the way you kind of talk about descending into anarchy i would imagine that your notion of what anarchy is is more like chaos entropy which is totally not what my understanding of anarchy is my understanding of anarchy is it's usually the order of the voluntary agreements that people make when they're in a state of chaos like anarchy is what happens when governments stop functioning once economies stop functioning like you know there's there's that beautiful moment during the rodney king riots like we're after the riots like some some dude just brought out a broom started sweeping up glass and all these other people in the community just started cleaning up the community like that's anarchy like stuff like that happens and like if you you you'll miss it if you don't know how to look for it so, I, I can buy that to the degree of like at a festival, which I know is different than the real world. Like there's a lot of wildness, but then people really look out for each other. I, I mean, I get that. But at the same time, even with these anarchy. recent riots, even with these recent riots, uh, people like mom and shop store owners who've been working their whole lives, like they had their stuff stolen, broken in their livelihood. Like that's also anarchy, isn't it? I mean, I get that there's good opinion, things. In my opinion, no, that's not anarchy. Like, I would not define, I would define that as crime. I would define that as vandalism. I would define that as, like, the total opposite of anarchy. Like, I don't know any, like, if you're an anarchist and you're fighting for the right to go riot on some poor mom and pop, like, you're not a real anarchist. You're a poser. You're just a thug. You're a vandal. And okay. I hope that mom and pop fucking shoots you, you know? Fair enough. So, but, but, so... Even if that there's, let's say that there's rioters and anarchists and there, or there's uh, vandals and anarchists and they're not the same people. If the entire system is anarchy, unless there's no police, whether or not police are good, there's no police, doesn't it kind of um, leave room for the vandals? If there's no sort of centralized power or somebody policing? You're not talking about anarchy. I mean, like anarchy is a form of order. Anarchy is government. Like in Plato's description of different kinds of government, you got, you know, rule by the wise, rule by the rich, rule by the people, democracy, and you've got rule by no one, anarchy. 
like it's a form of order. Anarchists love their little local governments. They love long, anarchists love long meetings. They love like their procedures and, and stuff like that. So, I mean, like this, the whole idea that like th there'd be a world without police. I mean, like that's not like, for me, that's not an anarchist utopia. For me, an anarchist utopia would be to see police teaching martial arts to people free of charge. You know, like as an anarchist, like who studies the Fed, as an anarchist who's become monetary literate, you know, by the thing that I've come to, to realize, I mean, first off, when we talk about anarchy too, you know, I mean, there's, there's like, there's different traditions of anarchy. And when I was learning about anarchy and studying it, there's definitely like a difference between European strains of anarchy and American strains. The like a lot of American anarchy is influenced by Spanish anarchism, specifically. Um, the, the best person to read about this is uh, Paul Averich. He's the great anarchist historian, and I studied with a friend of his at the University of Milwaukee, Michael Gordon, who taught me like poor people's history. You know the Zen type canon, but. Uh, the thing about anarchy, anarchism that really impressed me, people like Noam Chomsky, and even before him, Emma Goldman, was just how unideological they were. Like they didn't, they weren't pushing some sort of paradigm on anybody. Like Chomsky doesn't tell you what to think. He just breaks down an issue. He just, he's like, this is bullshit. And he calls it, you know, like Emma Goldman, she was like outspoken on such a wide array of issues. She was anti-war, she was, you know, eight hour workday type stuff, you know, women suffrage, like women voting, you know, I mean, um, against prisons, just like, she, she was really like a mixed martial artist, like of leftist issues, you know, and that's, that's really kind of what impressed me about anarchism was it's, very unideological and it's just very like yo this is messed up we gotta analyze this call it out do something about it um yeah well that's actually been one of my i mean with trying to understand issues from both sides like the left makes a lot of great points of how things are messed up but the solutions don't seem to be clear and maybe you can paint this like what would the world look like if you if you designed it accordance in accordance with the ideal ideals that you think are right like what, what would New York look like if there's well, even something called New York? I mean, forget about the utopian question. Mm -hmm. Taking it back to the left, and they have good analysis of things, but what the left is missing is monetary literacy. They, like Marx, one of the big failures in the left that um, was started by Marx is that he's, his notion of money itself is like pretty much identical to that of Adam Smith. He just identifies money as some sort of valuable commodity. Aristotle, on the other hand, let's take it back to antiquity because I want to get back to this whole thing about the sea people and the ancient Egypt and the other time periods in antiquity, but uh, losing it now. <laughs> Aristotle. Aristotle defines, thank you. Aristotle defines money anything can be money. Money exists by law. It doesn't exist like naturally. Like money isn't some valuable rare commodity like gold, like Adam Smith or Marx would have you believe. And so Marx really, Marx was nowhere near as intelligent as most Marxists give him credit for. I mean, like even within the left, like 
within sociology departments, like we read Marxism and we're like, what is this? You know, I mean, like Weberian, Max Weber, one of the founding fathers of sociology, who wrote the Protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism. Like that's more my um, uh, foundation within the left in which I'm operating under. And he was far more monetarily literate. You know, Marx, I'm sorry, Weber actually agreed with Zarlenga. I mean, like the, the, the history that Weber describes is pretty much identical to a lot of what Zarlenga describes in this book. So, I mean, these, these factors that led to the decline of ancient Egypt, <clears throat> the one missing factor that no one talks about within ancient Egypt is what was up with its currency system. My hypothesis, based on the experience of ancient Greece, ancient Rome, and even the United States that Zarlenga outlines in this book, is that Egypt probably abdicated control of its monetary my, my, my hypothesis would be is that bankers took control of Egypt's monetary system. They took that away from the government. Egypt probably became a big power because it probably issued currency free of charge for citizens to use. So, I mean, like what happened, you know, with like ancient Rome, ancient Greece, uh, they're, they're, the money that they used at first was like, like in ancient Sparta, they just issue iron bars. You, like before, going back before that, like people use seed or cows as money. And then what we start to see happening, at least as, as far back as um, 1500 BC to like 1000 BC in ancient Greece, is we start to see the rise of bankers, uh, priest bankers starting to use gold as money. Hmm. Hey, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about Egypt, but from what I about their money, I, from what I understand, one of their vulnerabilities was that the pharaoh and his office directed production on every level. So, like when things became uh, kind of when things went awry, it was too much for one central location to to monitor everything. So it's so centralized. I don't know if that extended to money, but I believe that uh, was the case. One of the things that Zarlenga writes. Is like in ancient Athens, you can find detailed records about how the garbage was collected, but you can't find anything about how the coinage operated. Like bankers keep this stuff to themselves. They keep these tricks secret. They don't want us to know about this stuff. So like, I mean, you're not going to find anything about it, like archaeologically, more than likely. But my hypothesis would be based on based on ancient Greece, ancient Rome, and even the U.S. Like Dewey issued debt-free currency, um, the continental currencies, and for a while the greenbacks. And this is similar to ancient Rome; they issued the the bronze ace. But the bankers, you know, usually what happens is they start a war, and then once a country gets locked into the cycle of warfare, that's when they usually take control of the monetary system. So in ancient uh, Greece and ancient Sparta, and, and again, ancient Rome, once these, once they get locked into war, they switch to silver and gold for the monetary systems. And then even after they, they finish whatever war they're in, like the second, like Rome switched to silver and gold during the second Punic War with Hannibal. And after that war ended, they, this is when they, like, they started getting into the imperial activity and constant warfare, constantly looking for new uh, lands to take over and to set up mines so they could strip more silver and gold out. And this is the parallel is the U.S. constantly starting new wars 
all over the Middle East looking for more petrol, petrol dollars to dig up out of the earth. So, I mean, the eco, even like the ecology movement needs to be focused on monetary creation, like creating money out of gold and silver is like the first crime against planet Earth from which all the others kind of began. And so, um, Looking back to ancient Egypt, like I mean, like in terms of like what happened, you know, my my question for the archaeologists would be, what was their monetary system like? What were those changes? Hmm. Um. I, and of course, so so the thing with anarchy that I've questioned, and like I understand like the feeling you're getting. Maybe we just have different definitions, but like when COVID was really hitting, I was on an island. It was a pretty safe island. There wasn't a lot of government or police on the island. It was kind of like a hippie paradise. Um, but there was a limited entry of food. And I'm like, you know, like uh, ships to the grocery stores, like the grocery stores are already becoming empty. And there's a lot of hippies on this island. I'm like, shit, like at some point, people might run out of food. Starving people, even as kind as they are, what are they going to do? I mean, they don't want to starve. People might get violent over this limited amount of food. And there's not really any police here. So what's going to happen? We're all going to have to defend ourselves, which I kind of glorify and romanticize because I like The Walking Dead and all that stuff and Mad Max. Like, I think I would do well, but that's just me. Um, but the thing is, then I, like, I was trying to like play this in my head. Well, there's no police here. Eventually, somebody would want to fill in the power gap, like a mafia group would be like, I'll protect you for something. I think that's just a natural human behavior as someone with the means of force. I don't think it would take long force. for that to happen at all. I think that would happen yeah. or yeah and would it, so would it what, what would stop that from happening in like an anarchist utopia where it's like maybe 90 percent of the people are great five percent are criminals and five percent of those criminals are like well i i'll i'll provide the muscle if you pay me that that's a, essentially what like a, a military state becomes isn't it kind of or yeah i mean it's, it's sort yeah. of like a feudalism i mean that's 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 feudalism that's not anarchy mm -hmm. you know but I mean? isn't isn't anarchy vulnerable to that like because like it just seems like it's so vulnerable to someone wanting to claim power like it kind of relies on everyone being well -meaning. anarchy anarchy isn't a destination like there's no there's no Anarchy isn't for some perfect world. Anarchy is something that you see everywhere in, in everyday life. Even if those, even if those warlords set up their their structure or whatever, you're still you're still gonna see mutual aid. You're still gonna see people working together in order to survive whatever oppression those warlords put the people under. You know, like anarchy is what will hold. I mean, th this is the thing. The thing is that, you know, I, I see anarchy holding up capitalism. You know, anarchy is what works. Capitalism, anarchy is the only thing holding all this together. I mean, like the police, I mean, the threat of imprisonment, like the threat of the police, I mean, the law, like that's not keeping people from chaos, from committing murder or rape, you know, theft. Like the law doesn't hold anyone's behavior in check. What does? In my opinion, it's <clears throat> anarchy. It's this, this, you know, this, this sense of like, look, there's other people out here. There's going to be consequences if I go out and do these things. Like other people can do these things back to me. 
you know. But doesn't that um, just, uh, won't that eventually become whoever can get away with stuff will, like a, a band of warlord type folk? Um, it, it's like, wouldn't it just be the same type of oppression, but on a smaller scale with different characters? And like I'm saying, I mean, like this isn't, it, like, I mean, there's some, there's mixtures of anarchism with Marxism, but like, I'm not arguing for anarchism. I'm not, like, anarchism isn't like, this whole idea, like, I'm not trying to change anyone's ideas, like getting everyone to believe in anarchy, getting everyone to think that anarchy is a good thing, isn't going to get anyone out of debt. That's not going to prevent anyone from actually like figuring out what the Fed is and pushing through the Need Act. You know, people would rather talk about these ideas about anarchism. These people would, I mean, like the way that you would rather talk about this hypothetical, like anarchy mm -hmm. versus chaos, these structures, to me, those conversations are precisely what's keeping us from talking about the Federal Reserve and debt, which is precisely what's creating a prisoner's dilemma in our everyday lives already. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's like anarchy, like cap, like what's better, like capitalism, communism, anarchism, you know, feminism, like, like all the, this, this debate between different ideas, like this is exactly what Marx was arguing against. Like, you know, he was cutting his teeth. He was arguing against these, these German philosophers called the young Hegelians who were talking about like, if only we can just like, you know, get everyone to kind of believe in some sort of categorical imperative or something. I'm, I'm not a specialist on them, but Marx is like, it's not about what people think. It's about actually, it's about actual structural change. Like we got to take over actual factories. And one of the things that Marx actually advocated in the Communist Manifesto, the fifth plank, was to nationalize the Bank of England. Bank of England is actually the fifth. The Bank of England is the inspiration for the Fed. So, I mean, this, this whole, all these ideological debates, all these hypothetical scenarios, it's like the, the, the only real hypothetical scenario, like the hypothetical scenario that I'm interested in is what happens when money is abundant what happens when there's no shortage of money when people don't have to um go into debt when when money yeah, is i don't think it's that hypothetical yeah. though because um i mean it's kind of hard to tell what will happen especially now but i think it's just as likely we ascend or descend or completely change government structures before a need the need act is passed i mean they, I mean, I, I mean, I can't tell, but it seems like one is not certainly more likely than the other. And one would like, obviously, if the United States fell apart, the Need Act would have to start from scratch because there'd be no Congress. I mean, very hypothetical. I'm going extreme, but like, I think all of these things are. There's no reason to think that the Need Act is going to get passed. I mean, like, except mm -hmm. for the random chance factor that, you know, I mean, I know what I'm doing. I mean, it's like there's there's a science to this mm -hmm. that. I mean, there's a science to movement building that is a whole other conversation of itself. Have you read Swarmwise? It's by um, Swarmwise by Rick Falvingi. He's the one of the founders of Pirate or the Pirate Party in Pirate Bay. Um, I'm forgetting. I'll send you the link. It's like a really great book on how he created the Pirate Party, basically, which was like the first grassroots party in Europe. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, I think you. I, I'll send you the link. But um, what was I going to say? Oh, what did you think of chess? What do you think of chess? Chess? Uh, the, uh, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle where they took over. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 
I mean, like, I didn't pay much attention to it. Okay. To be honest with you, I was just working. I mean, it's, it's not, it didn't inspire me. I mean, it was, it was it's interesting. It's sort of another, like, Occupy Wall Street moment, a little bit scarier, but I don't really know anything about it. I can't speak to it. It really didn't, it really didn't, like, fill me with any hope or anything for the mm-hmm. future. I mean, to me, stuff like that is like running a marathon in the direction opposite of the finish line. In terms gotcha. of actually creating structural reform, and my goal as a leftist, as an anarchist, is to get people out of debt, it's to make sure that people don't have to worry about money, it's to make sure that people got jobs and houses and in the future, and you know, the clean environment. You know, it's basics. Mm-hmm. That's that's what do you anarchy. Think, to me. What do you think would be progress, or what would give you hope, like short of the NEDAC, which I don't think would be passed this year or soon like what would be progress this year the conversation i mean seeing people at the fed for any reason just people talking about like what's happening right now and there's no way you can be at the fed without the need act being becoming Mm -hmm. part of that conversation but i mean you know honestly like one of the the only thing i agree the, the only thing president trump said in the past four to five years already that i i have to agree with in spite of myself is that you know he said the federal reserve is loco it's crazy and like he's right and then you know like in doing so like trump has actually proven to me that he's a lot smarter than most of his critics are like all these people who think he's an idiot and he is he's an ignorant person but he's not he's definitely not stupid when it comes to power when it comes to abusing his own power i think he's very very intelligent but i mean like he he he, he even he's been the most critical president out of any president we've had of the federal reserve and it's embarrassing that it hasn't been a democrat president as critical of the fed as him i mean he would have fired the head of the federal reserve jerome powell by now if he could have but like Jerome Powell is the one guy in this country that Trump can't say you're fired to. Like, you know, let that sink in for a second. Like the, the head of the Fed is above Trump. Like he can't he can't fire him. It's like Trump isn't even the most powerful person in like the world by any means. And it's like that alone almost gives me more hope than like a lot of this other stuff. I mean, like AOC's Green New Deal, like, I love it, but, like, how are you going to pay for it, you know? Like, she couldn't even answer the question because she's listening to modern money theory, our competitors who, and that's another conversation entirely. So what would give me hope is, like, more scrutiny of the Fed, more people talking about the Fed, and I am seeing it. You know, people, more and more people are talking about it. But like what, what kind of scares me is that like there's more libertarians, there's more people on the right focusing on the Fed than on the left. And that's that's gotta change. Hmm. Uh you're familiar with Andrew Yang's universal basic income propositions? Yeah. Of course. What are your thoughts? Look, if um if you could get UBI to people, great, do it. That's I mean, but that's a short-term sugar high. That's a short-term fix. Ultimately, that's only going to contribute towards inflation in the long run. Only that's, that's only going to put us 
further in debt to Wall Street in the long run. You know, every, you know, on a, on a, a dollar bill, it says a bill, bill, debt. It's a debt that the government owes to the Fed. So, I mean, if you have the government giving private debt money to people, that still has, like, I mean, it's not really UBI if you're still, if you're government, if you still got to pay taxes on it in the long run, it's not a true stimulus. So you can't really do UBI until you've nationalized the Fed, until you're issuing money debt-free, tax-free into existence. Like sending out UBI payments to people will only contribute towards the decline of our dollar at this point. Like at this point right now, it would be too late to really, for UBI to prevent us from further catastrophe. Like sending out UBI payments will be great just for a minute, but even these Trump stimulus checks, like it's all gonna, it's all contributing to another bubble that's going to pop very soon in the near future. And it's honestly kind of too late for UBI payments right now with the monetary system that we have. What do you think about cryptocurrencies? Same deal. It's the same situation. Like it's not, it's not a real alternative currency because you're still buying it with U.S. dollars. Mm -hmm. It's still a measure. It's just an alternative measure of debt that the government owes the Fed and that the people owe the government, so the government can pay the Fed. Like it's, you're not really making a switch. I mean, people, crypto's been around with us for like about 10 years now. And people are like, crypto's going to solve all our problems. It's going to protect us from the Fed. And it hasn't happened yet. What we see happening just from that Netflix documentary on Bitcoin is that Live Masters, the woman who brought us the credit default swap, she's already getting interested in, in crypto. And I mean, once Wall Street gets its hands on crypto, they're going to use this to evade all kinds of oversight. You know, I mean, like the, the Bitcoin exchange in New York, right on Wall Street, got shut down by this New York state regulator who then went into like a private business, helping people pass the let, get past the, the barriers that he created for people just to start Bitcoin trading. So yeah, it hasn't worked and it's, it could work a little bit better. Like if you've got money right now, and you invest in Bitcoin, like that could help you, that could protect you a little bit when the dollar collapses. I'd say Bitcoin is a better investment than gold, but it's not, it's not, cryptocurrency is not going to solve our problems. One thing, the other thing about crypto though, is that um, the Need Act was written in 2011. Jamie Walton, one of the authors of the Need Act, told me that it will be rewritten once we get a new congressional sponsor so that um, money will be distributed, money could be distributed through crypto technology, through blockchain technology. This would be good because now this is, this is actual money it's being distributed through crypto. It's not debt being circulated. It's money that needs to be paid back later on as taxes. So I'm for crypto, I'm for the tech, but it's not a real revolution without the monetary revolution. It's not going to do the trick. If you could have done Occupy Wall Street over with everything you know now, what would you have done? 
I would have, when I was on Fox and on MSNBC, I would have told people to read the NEED Act, call their Congress reps and read the NEED Act. And I relive this. Honestly, that's like the four trillion dollar question I ever want because I relive that every day. Like, what would I have done differently? Like, that's it right there. I mean, I would have, I would have had my head out of my ass. I would have read this bill, would have read this book, which I wish more people would do right now. And I would have told people to call their Congress reps, tell them to read this, this bill and get this passed. And my entire life since Occupy Wall Street has been about getting back on TV just so I can say that. And that's what I'm going to keep doing. And that's what I'm going to try to do again. It's coming nine year anniversary, uh, September 17th. I'll be back out there. And I'll be down at Zuccotti trying to get people from Zuccotti down to the Fed just to start something new and try to get a big movement going. And uh, I've got a few little tricks up my sleeve can use to try to get more people out there. Uh, I forgot to ask you about your dissertation. Um, can you share a little bit of the sure, gist? Yeah. So um, it's, I mean, long story short, my specialty in sociology is deviant behavior, sociology of deviant behavior. Like what is deviance is sort of the first question you have to tackle. And there's no, sociologists have had a really hard time answering this question. And um, my answer is that it's, it's basically play. And, uh, you know, there's a long history of the Protestant church persecuting play, you know, throughout Europe and throughout America. And uh, I find that this usually tends to happen during periods of massive expansions of, of debt, of, of credit. Massive monetary disturbances usually, usually when when the banks start messing everything up, that's usually when the Protestants start bullying, persecuting other people, other non-white, non-Protestant people, and they often do it by attacking their plays, like attacking dances, attacking you know different styles of music, styles of dress, clothing, language, try to prohibit that stuff. So my favorite category of deviance is political deviance. And um, talking about how deviant behavior, massive collective deviant behavior disruptions often can and will lead to social change. Um, and then, yeah, so my dissertation is, is um, using Occupy Wall Street, my autoethnographic personal experiences comparing that to other periods of political deviance in, you know, Western European and American history and using that to create a better theory of deviant behavior. And uh, one day I look forward to getting that published. That'll be a long, long road ahead of me. Yeah. Yeah. I know you're, you're burnt out on writing, but uh, yeah, it'd be interesting. Not at all. I'm the, the year of gardening. I, I really want to get back to it. Okay, great. <laughs> like, you know, you gotta get, you gotta get funded in order to get that done. So. Um, you mean writing the book? Yeah. I mean, like you need, it's a full-time job, Like you gotta get mm. advanced. Like, gotta, you gotta get a different way to, but you know, I, I really want to get a new movement. I want to get new headlines, new, that I can insert into a book to make it more um, contemporary because it's already a little dated. You know, mm -hmm. it's already a few years old. Like Occupy Wall Street, it's not. It's still an important topic, but it's not like a hot topic that would land me a job if the universities were still open. So, 
Yeah, it's almost, I mean, I guess it's too soon to be a historical thing, but it might be in the near future. Um, and, and, and this is why I want to create something. Like, it, popping this bubble on the side is more important to me, because then I can analyze it from the perspective of my dissertation, then it will be timeless. So for me, like, you know, those who can organize, those who can't teach. Uh, in terms of like the left and its movements, I mean, you mentioned organiz- I think that's always been the case. I think you, you alluded to that, where the left has been disorganized. There's been a lot of infighting that even within, even within movements like BLM or similar movements, there's a lot of uh, disjointedness, which I think some people theorize is one way the right prevents the left from collecting, that they're always split. But what would you do as a voice on the left to actually make progress if you could control everything somehow? I mean, the, the one thing that I've been trying to get people to focus on is that, I mean, the, the Federal Reserve is the one issue that really should not only unite everyone within the left, the Federal Reserve is the one issue that should reunite the right and the left in a temporary stance of mutual information. And I got to tell you, you know, like I, I talk to people on Facebook and on Twitter sometimes who like I don't agree with on like any other viewpoint, like their, their views on like immigration, on climate change, on, even on BLM, just, like disgust me. Like these are pro-Trump people. I'll share the need act with them, but like, what do you think of this? And like, wow, this is really rational. We need this. Yeah, because I mean, your views, I was actually gonna have you debate uh, a conservative guy who's also intelligent, even though I think you disagree <laughs> with everything. Your views on money are pretty libertarian, at least libertarian friendly. And, and I mean, like the thing, yeah, and like, I mean, libertarians have to agree with me in spite of themselves. I'm not a typical anarchist. Like no other anarchist is anywhere near as monetarily literate as me. Um, not in, in the New York area, at least. But, you know, the thing I will say is that the extreme right, the libertarian right, their intuitive understanding of, um, you know, the Fed and of the IRS and the war like all the, all the wars that the Fed creates, that's something that the left really needs to uh, take a look at. And it, you know, like the, it's hard to get to look at some of that stuff because I mean, there, there is a lot of anti, um, there's a lot of anti-Jewish type conspiracies, you know, like within the right, you know, there's a lot of racism that you, know, you got to overlook, not overlook, but there's a lot of, the, 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 the bigotry and the racism and some of the, the anti-science conspiracies make it hard for the left to appreciate some of the really important points that the libertarian right has brought up about the Fed. And about Have you thought of reaching out to war. someone from the right and collaborating? Because yeah, I, I mean, like I, that would I, be I a very unified. I, do that all, I mean, I talk to people all the time on the right. And they, they yeah. Agree with me. Well, because honestly, I, I get a little, I mean, I'm, I, I don't know where I really fall, honestly, between left and right, but I try to see both points and I probably, I'm, I'm certainly more conservative than you. You really don't want to be a part of it. You don't want to, you don't want to have a position. You don't, this isn't some, this isn't a game anyone should even want to play. Like, I, I, yeah. there's something, there's something wrong my, with you if you identify as an anarchist or a communist or a capitalist or like. Well, my point is that I. Uh, I have, I've met a lot of people who identify as libertarian right or anything right. And I've really not met that many racists. In fact, I, I can't say I've met any racists. And I, I, think, I, I think it's like 
really insidious propaganda that we're all kind of subject to that the other side is evil. And I think it's probably, that's one of the reasons why I wanted you to have this debate with a guy who's very different because I think you're both solid individuals. But anyway, that's, that's my, it's my viewpoint. <laughs> I'm trying to get everybody to, to, to at least lay their things on the table peacefully because um, we all want the same thing. I don't know who's like reading Mein Kampf and like supporting ideas of, you know, phrenology like that, like, you know, yeah, Africans have like diminished cranial capacities. I mean, like, like we have to talk about like what does racism mean? You know, I think like a lot of people, you know, they use the word racism to describe what is really just discrimination or bigotry or bullying. Like, so I mean, again, I mean, defining terms is important, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Like the right isn't as evil as the left portrays them out to be. And I think the left is, I mean, I think they yeah, there's, there's a lot of authority. There's a lot of abusive people on the left for sure, who do just as much bullying as they would accuse their counterparts on the right of. Yeah. And I think it's just, uh, as we mentioned with the power gaps, you know, if, if there was no police, I mean, someone in a large group is going to want to be selfish. And um, I think that's part of human nature. Um, cool, man. Well, this has been a stimulating early morning conversation for me. Um, Late night for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, where, can, where, where do you want to send people? I'm, I'm sure you want people to read the Need Act. Is there anywhere else uh, you want check to out, check out? Check out uh, the Alliance for Just Money. Uh, monetaryalliance.org right, we'll add that link yeah that's the new link and um you can you can check out um the alliance for just money on twitter and on facebook it's not a big profile yet i have a mm-hmm. lot of work to do but this will um, help and for uh you're giving a talk in september is that right in new york yeah i'll be out september 17th uh, in the evening at probably like 5 p.m like five to six, I'll be I'll be out there live streaming. I'll be giving away some pizza. If I get this, at Bugatti? Uh, no, at the Fed. Okay. At the Liberty Plaza. So I'll be at the I'll be hanging out at Zuccotti all day, canvassing, and I'll mm-hmm. head over to the Fed like around five. And uh, hopefully, if I get this Trump stimulus check, I might even have some free weed to give out again. So. <laughs> cool. So uh, I mean, this will come out a few weeks before that. Um, how can people like keep track of that? If they want Facebook, there's, there's okay. an event like this created. Um, I haven't, it doesn't even have any responses yet. I haven't even begun promoting it yet. Mm-hmm. So you, you're definitely hearing it first. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Man. Well, it was great to catch up. Thanks for coming. Always back. a pleasure, Juan. Always a pleasure. Thanks for asking the right questions, man. Yeah. We'll do this again. We'll do this yeah, again. Yeah, for sure. Once, like once, once the dollar drops and <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's more to talk about, like this is, this, we'll keep it going, bro. For sure.